0: Welcome back, guys. This is episode three of the Side Hustle Cincinnati podcast. And El Trace. El Trace, yes. You're here with uh, Adam Kaler and Kyle Stevie. And we also have with us today, Ash Patel, who is big time into commercial real estate and also uh, business investing as well. So we're really happy to have Ash here today.
1: We're very happy that they, on Facebook there are a lot of people happy to have Ash on today.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got a following. I'm just excited to hang out with you guys.
0: <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you. And uh, again, I'm attempting to record this episode. So we've got our GoPro here on the table right on Asha's face. And then we've got our, uh, our nice little Canon camera up there, too. So we'll see how this turns out, because one day I want to put these things up on YouTube. Very cool. Outside of just having the podcast, we should probably have a YouTube channel. But I should have uh, dressed up. I know. Yeah, you should have dressed up. Well, I'm glad to have a commercial real estate guy here in my building. I was showing Osh around a little bit. Uh, He hasn't been here in a while, but he hasn't definitely hasn't seen our podcasting station here at Coveworks. Every episode we do is filmed here. We dragged Osh down. I think he spends a lot of his time up at the lake right now,
2: right? Correct. Yeah. Since uh, COVID's on, we're online schooling the kids from there. Nice. So yeah, nice backdrop. Nice place to be when you don't have to be in Loveland or in Cincinnati. No, <laughs> not as much traffic. No, zero. Boat we traffic. Don't leave the house. Yeah, get on the boat, get out. Yeah, simple.
0: So I noticed I was uh, watching a video of you drive around to a like a mini mall you had just purchased. And you had your kids in the back and you were driving around asking them questions about the property. Why did I buy this? What do you guys see about the neighborhood? What do you see about the building that makes it valuable? Tell us a little bit about that and the importance of education for your for your kids.
2: So my wife works a lot of hours, so I've always had the kids with me. And if I have to go to a construction site, if I have to go to any meetings, they usually get drug along with me. So if they're there, might as well learn something or might as well put in some work, clean up a little bit, sweep and mop. But, you know, if I'm there, might as well teach them what I'm doing, uh, even though they may not initially take as much interest as I'd like them to. In the end, they start asking crazy questions. My my eight-year-old son said, hey, dad, can you sue somebody if they don't pay your rent? <laughs> So so, uh, he must have overheard some conversations or whatnot, but it's cool that they're starting to get glimpses of that. And it's starting to pay off because they're starting to understand exactly what it is that I do. I remember years ago, they would ask uh, in school, what your parents do for a living. And I don't know, the answers that my kids threw out were crazy. They didn't know what I did. Most of my friends didn't, my wife didn't know what I really did for a long time. So, yeah, now uh, it's established they know what I do. They're starting to pick up on a lot of that, so it's pretty cool.
0: Is there any inclination that they want to do what you do when they get older?
2: Um, no, but they could do it as a side hustle because they'll have the knowledge to be able to do it.
1: You can do the side hustle and be a doctor. With Asha's family, it's very successful. I mean, those kids got some stuff to live up to. It's like the Huxtable kids.
0: Oh, wow. Well, tell us tell us about your family. Tell us you know, what your parents do and— And how you got into this whole thing.
2: Yeah, so start at the beginning. I grew up with super strict Asian immigrant parents. So we're first generation Americans here. And uh, just, you know, the the craziest strict upbringing. We weren't allowed to go out a lot. Weren't allowed to date. My parents picked my path in college for me. I was told that I'm going into IT just like my brother. So I wanted to go into marketing. And they're like, no, 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 your brother's doing uh, IT. You're doing IT too. And couldn't talk my way out of it. So I didn't have a whole lot of interest in that, but I had to pursue that because they were paying for college and um, did it, you know, had a a pretty successful IT career for a lot of years, but I knew that wasn't where my passion was. So throughout my career, I always had a side hustle and I knew I wasn't going to work someplace till the age of 65, retire and, you know, spend uh, what you're allotted every month. So I knew there were better ways, and that immigrant mentality, I saw a lot of my parents' friends who had the typical, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, convenience stores, hotels, and I thought it was really cool that they didn't have to get up and go to work and answer to somebody. My parents both had to put in the hours, get up at 5 a.m., go to work, work weekends at times, and I just thought, you know, there's two completely different lifestyles there, so... Um, what did they do? What were they? So my dad was a chemist. He worked on government grants, did a lot of research for the government, but every year his job would come down to whether or not his grant was approved. So there were times where he wouldn't have a job for several months up to a year. And my mom was a realtor back in the day when it was hard being a realtor, paper listings, um, no internet, you know, showing houses at all hours. Pre dot loop. Yeah, uh, pre everything. And literally, you know, you would get a client and they they would have no idea of what's out there. So you would have to completely educate them, show them tons of houses, unlike today, where everyone's already done the homework and gotten on Zillow and, you know, all the realtor sites and said, okay, I want this house or I want one of these two. So she, she put the grind in back in the day.
0: So she was, in a way, she was the work ethic
2: influence for you. You know, both of them were uh, both my parents just uh, worked very very hard. And then, you know, we were expected to do all the housework. I mean, we had to put our pull our own weight as well.
0: So tell us about these jobs that you had. Like you're talking about you were in the IT world. How how was that as an entrepreneur knowing you now having a 9 to 5? And and for me it was I was miserable. I was miserable because my future was dictated by the numbers of the entire organization.
2: Yeah, so first job, uh graduated from Indiana University, got a job in Cincinnati, worked there for 6 months. It was an IT consulting company and we traveled 100%. We were literally gone from home 30 days at a time. And after 6 months of that, they laid off 500 people. So basically this company bid on this big Procter and Gamble contract. Went from twenty people to six hundred in one summer, and then when the project was over, they told everyone that they were going to go celebrate at this hotel, and people literally walked in or were handed unemployment papers. So it was, you know, a big kick in the ass.
1: So everybody got there, they were all excited, and then they yeah. get laid off. I was just like an episode of The Office, dude. Like, like we like thought, Michael Scott just Michael Scott throws a party for you, and here it is.
2: We were stoked, I and mean, we thought we were going to go celebrate and have a good time. And literally, (laughs) just a kick in the ass, you know. So now, uh, I signed a year lease on this apartment. Didn't really have, and I had no family in uh, Cincinnati or in the Midwest. So, you know, do I tuck my tail between my legs, move back to Jersey, and start over? Or do I just try to figure it out? So luckily, uh, I was able to get another IT consulting job within a month or two. And uh, my career progressed from there. So I stayed in IT for about 11 more years, moved up the corporate ladder, but it sucked. You know, the politics sucked, uh, the finger pointing, the meetings about meetings. There were times where, so I was the youngest person in my department, the youngest manager in the company. And every time I got promoted, other people would bitch and moan because they're older than I was. And they assume because they're older, they should get promoted too. And literally this company promoted people because of that. Like, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is somebody that works with Ash and we can't promote him without promoting her. She's twice as old as him and just, you know, it's a lot of bullshit, you know, never really enjoyed going to work. So I had one side hustle after another the entire time I was in IT.
0: So how did, how did that start? How did the side and start? I mean, you saw this promote by seniority situation happening. Was that when you started, it kicked in and you were like, Hey, I need, I need to start side hustling.
2: No. So when I uh, started working, it was around 99, 2000, the peak of the tech bubble. And literally every day on the news, I'd come home and watch some new kid. That's an overnight millionaire because he had some great idea or supposed a great idea. So I started thinking, wait a minute. I mean, I don't think these kids are that much smarter than I am. What can I do to figure out how to get there? And I started brainstorming. And I'm like, okay, I'm in IT. I should be able to figure something out, right? So uh, websites were kind of new at the time. Why don't I start making websites? Went to the library, got a bunch of books on how to design sites. And it looked like a kid made them in the basement of his Mom's
0: bedroom, You needed it, to know me back yeah, in the like, day. Yeah, I could have helped I, you with that side of it.
2: So I realized <laughs> I wasn't a designer and I needed to find, I needed to find somebody that can do this and I would sell the work. So I ended up finding this guy who was the husband of one of my coworkers who had been a graphic designer his whole career. And I asked him if he wanted to make some money on the side. So I started selling websites and he started developing them. And this quickly grew This was again, 99, 2000, our revenue the first year was probably 70, $80,000 and all of my time where I wasn't working was devoted to the side company. It was called Paramount Marketing. We just hustled our ass off. I mean, the mornings before work, I'd get up at five and uh, either email clients or do some development work during lunch. I'd sit in my car, eat lunch on the phone with clients. The second I left work, it's back on the phone in my apartment grinding. And I did this for probably a year and a half, two years. And my partner, uh, so at at the time we had taken on some additional people. And the cool thing was I designed this company where we would have no full-time employees. It'd be a side hustle for everybody. So you keep your full-time job. I'm not paying benefits. I'm not having the added pressure of supporting families, right? This is just people that want money on the side. Well, my partner all of a sudden decides to quit his job. So now I felt obligated to make sure he's got enough income to support his family. And, you know, that worked for a while. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to quit my job too. So one night we're out celebrating a buddy's birthday, middle of the week. And, um, I decided I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. Everyone's like, whatever, man, shut up. So the next morning, I'm hungover, uh, show up to work at noon with a giant water bottle because I'm so dehydrated, and I show up in shorts and a Hawaiian shirt in February, walk up the stairs, and everybody just looked at me like, what? And like, this kid's lost his mind. (laughs) So I walk into my boss's office, and I'm like, hey, can we talk? He's like, yeah, we better. Closes the blind so nobody else would see me, and uh, I'm like, hey, I got to give you my two weeks' notice. He's like, well, listen, let's talk, you know, long story short, he ended up talking me out of quitting my job and giving me a huge raise, a promotion. Um, And then I had one of those moments where I kind of had to decide what direction I go in. So at that time um, I sold the company to my partner and I just kept my nine to five job and it was a pretty big weight lifted off my shoulders because I didn't have to hustle and grind every minute of the day. I I finally got some of my free time back, right? So. So your path is, I mean, it's pretty much what
0: my agency is because what we do is the exact same thing. And I, everyone that works for me, I encourage to go out and find more clients. So, or they are already freelancing because I worked at these big agencies. And a lot of times what happens is these people, they start making too much money their senior level, as soon as you get over you know, over $100,000, they start looking to replace you with two, three people a couple of years out of college, right? Yeah. So they end up contracting. They end up going out on their own and trying to contract. One of the problems I think I find with some of these people, and we talked about it in the last episode, is they need that corporate structure, a lot of them do. And they don't always make it but I'm set up for reversed out almost exactly like you guys were set up. And yes, it's a ridiculous amount of hours. Clients email you 11, 12 o'clock at night. Hey, I just need something for tomorrow morning. I've got this thing and I need it done, you know? And if you just happen to look at your email, then you feel guilty that you have to get this
2: thing done, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the mistakes that I made back then was uh, I didn't ask for help. Uh, I had on my list of things to do to go to SCORE, which is the service core Mm. of retired entrepreneurs. And uh, what Kyle brought in, brought up on his first podcast with you, was a lot of people are afraid to ask for help. And that resonated with me. I was so afraid that if I went there, I'd feel like a dumbass because they would say, you know, show me your financials. I didn't have financials. I had, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. I had so much bad debt because I was so focused on building a company and i was also the collection person so i would rather hear somebody's sob story and continue doing work for them thinking in my mind that i'm building this company bigger oh, and bigger yeah, yeah. so probably 50% of our revenue ended up being bad debt and you know it, it's typical startup growing pains but cool experience After, how, how old were you during all this i think 22 23 so one of the things that we found in that company was we were developing websites but people expected us to deliver a site that would turn them into an overnight millionaire. And then when the website went live and they weren't millionaires, they looked at us like, what did we do wrong? And we explained to them that this is just a site. You've got to market your business. So the company evolved into a full-fledged online, offline marketing company where we essentially took over their entire marketing and let them focus on running their business. Um, So the next company I started was an SEO company. I met one of the guys, that the preemptive uh, SEO guy in the region, and he was focused on sports supplements. So that was, at the time, one of the most competitive categories to get ranked in.
1: Can I cut you off real quick? Yeah, yeah. Just think if you didn't listen to the last episode and you're not familiar like I really wasn't, can you just very quickly with the SEO, what it stands for and what it is.
2: Yeah. So uh, once you have a website, the reason you don't become a millionaire is because nobody knows it's there, right? So you have to market your site. You have to get ranked on search engines. Back then, there wasn't a lot of pay to play. It was mostly organic. So this is way before AdWords. And
0: and there was a lot of keyword stuffing and black hat tactics that people used to that people were using back then that you can't get away with now with Google. Yeah, there's a lot of that shady stuff going on, but it worked. I mean you were paying Russians and people in
2: China to just drop your link on every site around the world. Yeah so so Kyle, we essentially took people's websites and got them ranked on different search engines. Back then, uh, Google wasn't as big as they were or they are now. So there were multiple search engines that we would get them ranked on. That was a cool gig. It was somewhat passive in that once you get somebody established, it's just maintenance after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people were willing to pay big dollars as long as it equated to increased revenue. So I did that. That was cool for a while. After that, my partner and I started a sports supplement company. So we called it AmazonSupplements.com. And he warned me about the name when we when I picked it. I'm like, no, listen, we'll we'll piggyback on the name recognition. And again, back then Amazon wasn't as big as they are now, so we were starting to kill it. It was a one year mark of this company, and we got a letter from Amazon's lawyers: cease and desist, cease and desist. And oh, I want to say something really quick. Yeah. Cool.
0: Jordan Neville just wrote me earlier today, and he's going to be a guest on the show at some point. He literally just wrote me today at 9.52 and said, he said, we should get this sports supplements company started.
1: That dude, if, if you, you don't know him. He played football at Highlands and then at University of Kentucky. If a sculptor in the Renaissance had carved somebody out of stone, uh, granted, you've heard that. I mean, this is the this is the definition of it. Like the guy doesn't look human when you see him in person. Kind of like you. Here, here, well, I mean, oh, no, I don't want to put too—I don't want to put too much on people. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you can. I'm, I, my body's kind of like shoot for the stars, land on the moon kind of thing. Like, you oh, can yeah. look, try to look like me, but it ain't going to happen.
0: Yeah, he said we should do a canned
2: energy drink together, with uh, some alcohol in it, make it a seltzer. Oh, there you go. Yeah, both ah. versions, A kid version. Hey, a mom could drink her version of it, and the kid can drink their version of it. Oh, Shirley Not temples that. and stuff. Yeah. Like,
1: yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Daiquiri's and virgin daiquiri's, but See, in the energy drink. So the kids sphere. feel cool. So what were you guys making in your sports supplement company?
2: So it was mostly a dropship company. So we sold all kinds of products from weight gainers, vitamins, bedding for mattress toppers, you name it. Like there's thousands of products out there. Anyway, we get the uh, letter from Amazon. Not only do they want us to shut down, we had to hand over the domain name. All of our IP, everything, and I thought there's no way they can't they can't patent or trademark an entire jungle, right? Everything Amazon shouldn't be theirs. So I did some case law study, and there was a guy that had a company called Amazon Books, and he he tried to fight them, and had you know teams of lawyers, and he lost. So if he wasn't going to win, there's we wouldn't stand a chance. So uh, what did
0: they do? Just beat him up with like the yeah. longer you just prolong it, even though they may not be in the right, they have the money to continue to spend on these lawyers and you just end up giving up
2: at some point. Yeah. They were in and out of court for months and they just wore him out. So I asked them if we can have six months to shut the company down and uh, they agreed to that. So we try to maximize our sales for the next six months and then just turn everything over. So that shutdown. Um, And actually, so that was before the SEO company. So then my partner and I started the SEO company. Uh, We did that for probably a year or so. And he got diagnosed with kidney and liver failure. Mm. So that company got shut down. I mean, that's some of the side hustles.
0: Your side hustle business sounds a lot like my side hustle business where I was working in marketing, which is what you originally wanted to go into. Right. right. And then I said, hey, I'm only making Thirty-five, forty thousand dollars, or something, and then that's what got me into real estate because I said, you know, I picked up some about having side hustles, oh, multiple streams of income.
1: Oh yeah, that's the I, name I, of the book. That was a book that got me and in, originally interested, but my apathy for adventure never it, it never went very far from there.
0: Well, see, I read that book, and it, it just it, normally I hate to sit down and read. Like I've got ADD or something, right? I sit there and I'm just like, I can't get through a book. But this book, I actually got through and there was all these different types of businesses you could start that I could start. I was reading through it and I'm like, oh, wow, I could do this now. There's nothing keeping me from being able to go out here and do this. And then that's when I started investing in residential real estate. So you got into the game after you started these other businesses.
2: Into real estate. Yeah,
1: that was much later.
2: And, you know, I think the reason I started all these was really just to make money. No other reason. Quit my job, make money. Very simple.
1: Your life, right? your, your early life, sounds a lot like uh, the begin, the first few chapters of Rich Dad Poor Dad, because you had your dad who was working and it was always at the mercy of a grant, and then you had your community. You said, guys, the, the like, I don't know if they were your community by like a great neighbor, point. but they they you were watching other immigrants come in, and you were looking at them like, okay, so my dad's this educated guy, but he's working his ass off and he's at the mercy of them not taking whatever they pitch for their grant. In the meantime, these other guys who don't have the education have a convenience store. They have the grocery store. They have the Dollar, Gen- or some Dollar General or something similar, whatever New Jersey has. You got to, exp- you got to see both of those. So you're like um, Robert Kiyosaki a little bit.
2: That's a great point, and that had to have had a big impact on me. Yeah, because they all drove nice cars, lived in nice houses.
1: I mean, you do the real estate stuff around here. You go to the meetups, and you look at the guys, and— if you judge a book by the cover, you will never talk to him. You look at him like, that guy looks like a bum.
0: How does that work with all these, like the hotels and all this? People who live here in America, lived here their whole lives, that don't own hotels, they don't own convenience stores, they don't own any of this stuff. How does that work for immigrants? Like, Is there is there, before people come over here,
2: is there a plan? No, so it's an immigrant mentality where if you come to a new country and you see other people from the same place that you're from, And they've made it, whether it be Chinese restaurants or Korean markets or Indians with hotels and convenience stores, you see somebody with a similar background as you, and you're thinking, well, if they did it, I can do it too. So why don't I get involved in that? And a lot of times, like my uh, wife's father, he started out working in Dunkin' Donuts, and the guy just saved all his money, uh, never had an apartment. So this is when his family was still in India. He came out to the U.S. first and didn't see his kids for eight years. Imagine leaving your family for eight years, right? And the guy would sleep uh, on the train in Chicago. He would get a train pass instead of an apartment so that the train just circles all night long. And he would sleep on the train, save up all his money, and saved up enough money to bring his whole family over, have a house and a Dunkin' Donuts that they can work at. So that's the immigrant mentality, right? Like you find what other people like you, similar background have done, and you copy it.
0: That's how uh, my buddy Jonah Hyun, uh, who we'll probably have on the show, he's a side hustler now too. He's a super host at Airbnb. His father came to America and studied at the uh, Christian college in Price Hill so he could be a pastor. And the same story, left his, his wife and his three kids behind, came here. Jonah comes over when he's about 11 years old, Learns to speak English by watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of all things, right? Same story. And then his dad opened up a dry cleaners and I actually worked in there one day. It was the worst in the summer, the worst. I mean, 150 degrees in that place, probably. And Jonah worked there. It's like his side gig was to work for his dad. And now Jonah's uh, same thing, rental properties and uh, does Airbnb and freelances uh, programming.
1: Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my time in Mexico, um, there wasn't a much of a middle class of anything. So they you, you owned, you were, a, you owned the business. If you wanted to make any money or you were making pennies, up, up, you know, less than a dollar a day, whatever it was. The, so they bring like their old world mentality. Like the idea of the government subsidizing their lifestyle is non-existent.
2: Yeah. Most countries, uh, they don't do it. Yeah. So a lot of these third world countries, if you're poor, you know, there's a good chance you're going to die. There's no shelters. There's no handout for meals. There's, I mean, there's nothing you're living on the streets and you're looked at as a second class citizen by everyone else. Right. In the U S it's amazing where if you're homeless, there's so many programs here to help you. So yeah, most of the world is not like that.
1: Yeah. So you have the benefit of, you know, survival, but you lose the drive And, and that, that sounds super harsh. And I, I mean, it's easy for me to say it from my position don't get me wrong, but I love the fact that I I love going to bit when I do go to big cities and I have an Uber or a taxi driver from a different country. I like to talk to them and see what they're saying. And and like, how long have you worked today? Ah, this is a 15 hour shift for me. It's like, geez, you off tomorrow? No, I work six hours, six days a week. Sometimes I work seven. I love it here.
2: Yeah. And a lot of those guys, they do the same thing. And I try to, find out what their story is. A lot of them have family in Southern Africa or different parts of Asia mm-hmm. and they send money back or they have a goal on how much money they're going to save. And then they get to go back and retire because of the exchange rates and the U S dollar. So yeah, I mean, they've got a plan. It's that immigrant mentality. To me,
1: it's inspirational to know that the American dream still exists no matter what, what, what the modern media wants us to say so that they can continue to do what they're doing, not Control to be political us. about it. But when, your father in law came over, it wasn't a woe is me. I'm not going to, I don't know how I'm going to make this work. This, it was no, this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice. And I, I can't even imagine not seeing my kids for eight years, right? Like that's to me, that's like a, almost an ultimate sacrifice. What has
0: that done for the future generations of his family? What would have happened if he would have stayed?
2: Yeah, so now my wife's entire family has the sickest work ethic. They just work, 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 and they're all successful. Um, yeah. It's because of that, because of what they've been through and what they saw. And when they came to the U S they were expected to work, go to school, go to the Dunkin Donuts and work. Right. So what is their
0: impression of Americans? So my impression is what, cause I've known a lot of immigrants that have done what Osh is talking about here. And if you look at a lot of the super successful people, they're immigrants. I mean, Steve Jobs, his father was from Syria, I believe. Same with Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk. Elon Musk, right? You see these people and, and they come from this hard work ethic. And there's something has happened in America. And I don't know what it is because I've been here my whole life. But is there something you can identify?
2: Yeah, it's the more comfortable you get, the less you feel like you have to grind. When your back's against the wall, you know, even when I started out, when I'm making 25 dollars $30,000 at my nine-to-five, you know, I wanted more, right? So you had to get it done. But these immigrants multiply that times a thousand. They, they are not allowed to fail, right? There's no, there's no fallback. There's no safety blanket. Mm-hmm. So, we
0: talked about this in our first episode. When you're, when you're poor in America, if you do have this drive, and most people who become rich grew up poor, According to The Millionaire Mind, the book, The Millionaire Mind, and this was years ago, I read it, but they said 75% of people who are wealthy in America grew up poor, and I think it's that same mindset.
2: Yeah, and you know, there's a bell curve on generational wealth, so the curve will go up, 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 you know, generations will have more money than their parents, etc., and then at some point, it levels off, and then at some point, it goes down.
0: Yeah, they said 40% of people who grow up wealthy— end up middle-class or poor complacency.
1: Yeah. You don't have to, well, you don't, you don't get challenged. So it it goes with complacency. It goes with comfort, but you also don't know how to do it because you're not pressured into doing it. So you don't know how to scramble. You don't know how to hustle because you never had the hustle so that you never get that killer instinct. And if without the killer instinct, then you can't do this.
2: Good point. But back in the day before the internet, if we could have done it, then you sure as shit could do it now. Oh my God. All there's the so much. That's information that's out there. Oh. And all these startups that I had, by the way, were uh, bootstrapped with probably no money, right? Because I, I didn't have any savings. I spent everything I made. You know, I did all of these things with literally no money, just a little bit of hustle, trying to put some people together, figure it out. So there's no reason today anybody can't figure this out and make some money. Were you able to build
0: up a, a little nest egg that you could then leverage into other things? Not really. So you didn't even do that.
2: Like you didn't yeah, even have that I, when I you started. I just blew everything I made.
0: Oh man, on that chain you got on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't very smart with money. I bought a house, bought a car, you know, all that good stuff. But I never saved a significant amount of wealth.
0: So then how did you get into the real estate game?
2: Um, so that was much later in life. Uh, I was, it was probably 10 years ago to eight years ago. So at that time, I was well into my career making a lot more money than when I was in my 20s. So, and then I was married as well. So having two incomes helped. So I quit my job again in 2010. And this time I was going to quit to start an IT consulting company. So I figured, you know, I can use all of my IT experience and just go out on my own, hire other people like me and just consult and do the same thing, you know, make a little bit of money off of all the people that I'm sending out there. So I did that and this time quit my job. It was for real, got it done and started consulting. And that was fine. It ended up being a lot more work than I thought, uh, a lot more traveling. At this time we're both paying a shit ton in taxes so I always heard real estate was a good way to offset taxes, but didn't know why. Didn't even know uh, how to calculate depreciation. Figured, okay, let's go find a piece of real estate and looked for a few months. And I found a place called the Ravine Street Market down at UC. It's on a ravine in Warner Street. Just a little corner bodega with three apartments above it. And my immigrant mentality, the reason I bought it, was I figured as soon as the store lease was up, I can run the store, be a you know a store owner. I bought the building, and the apartments were uninhabitable. Uh, had to. What re-
0: year was this, by the way? What? Two thousand twelve. So okay, so commercial had still it was still kind of in the dumps at that yes. point. Yeah, yeah. Market the recovering. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: started renovating it, got it inhabited, got it rented out to college kids, and had an epiphany within probably six months or so where. Just about every weekend, I'm going down there to unclog sinks and toilets for these college kids. But then one day I saw the store owner had replaced their entire HVAC system, unbeknownst to me, right? So I'm thinking, wait a minute, like I've got these kids that are destroying my place and these commercial tenants that are actually improving it and adding value to it. So why don't I just do more commercial real estate? So uh, that's what started all of that.
0: Man, why didn't I meet you like... Ten years ago. Yeah, we should have. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if yeah, but then we would be without all the great bums and Price Hill stories. I'd have probably
0: another half million dollars in the bank if it wasn't for all these tenants.
2: By the way, every time I go to my fridge and get some sharp cheddar, I think about your government cheese.
0: Yes, dude, that's the best grilled cheese.
2: I I, I got to try some of that. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> so fast forward many years later, um, that's what I just kept doing: is uh, staying in commercial real estate. Buying, uh, rehabbing, and still thinking outside the box. I buy the types of properties that no one else wants, right? So I bought an office building that was vacant for five years and half finished. I mean, sat on the market. Nobody wanted it. Bought uh, a 12,000 square foot former Ace Hardware that had only 33 parking spots. Nobody wanted that either. So I buy the stuff that nobody else wants and just hustle and turn them around, get them leased out.
0: And so you try to reposition the property for some other use. And, and it's a matter of getting creative. I mean, when I bought this building, nobody else wanted it because there was a commercial kitchen in the basement. I've turned that negative into a positive. Absolutely. And Mavis Linneman, just earlier today, the SBA from DC came here to present her with an award right outside. She's the Kentucky business person of the year, small business person of the year. So she's one, I think, Kentucky business woman of the year, four years in a row. Now she is the small business of the year for 2020, just based on the fact that she's running a catering company and COVID's going on. So she's had to pivot. She's had to try to do different things. But having her in the basement has, you know, stabilized rent for this building for me. And it's given me flexibility to be able to do kind of what I want here and get the right kind of tenants in my space. And then, you know, we've got an event center upstairs boom, you've got a caterer downstairs. Brilliant. So once yeah. you get that going, I mean, so so repositioning these properties and stabilizing them is one thing. Do you hold these properties or do you, do you stabilize them
2: and then flip them? So my initial thought was just buy and hold. 2015, 16, there was a ton of coastal buyers coming into the Midwest. So I started selling them because they were overpaying for a lot of these properties.
1: They're still here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I thought commercial real estate and real estate in general had peaked out around 15, 16. I was vastly wrong about that. So I started selling a handful of properties and then I had the mentality of, okay, I'll just wait for the next buying opportunity, the next market crash, whatever it may be. And it turns out I was just making excuses because it was getting harder. In 2012, 13, you could buy any commercial property, turn it around, Right. Demand was increasing, uh, but when it got harder, I sat behind that excuse and figured, ah, I'll just wait, wait it out. And then I saw other people that were still killing it in, in residential mostly. So I'm thinking, what are they doing that I'm not? And it came down to, they're still out there hustling and grinding and I'm sitting back taking the easy way out. So then I got back into the game, started networking, marketing, and it's picked up and it's been on the up and up since then, so... Yeah, I figured out, you know, when shit gets hard, you just got to put some more work into it.
0: Well, you mentioned that a couple of times now. You mentioned that when you were doing your your advertising or your web business. You said, hey, we would hustle. We would grind. we We would get things done. How did you find clients? I think one of the hard parts for most people, they have this nine to five. They're afraid to leave that because I think one of the hardest things for people is they don't feel like they're salespeople. They can be salespeople. Where am I gonna find clients for my tile business, for whatever it is? How did you
2: find your early clients? I mean, you weren't in the web business. I mean, so how did you find those guys? Great question. Um, I did everything from literally sending out thousands of handwritten letters to restaurants, businesses, downtown, wherever. I would buy domain names of you know, Sycamore Cafe, for example. I would buy that domain name, Sycamore Cafe, send them a letter saying, hey, I bought it, happy to put up a website if you wanna take a look at it. A lot of word of mouth and just, just constant hustling. Everyone I ran into told them what I was doing, asked if they needed a website. If I saw other people that had a website that wasn't very appealing, I would offer to redo it. We would even make a free mock-up and get them to fall in love with it where they couldn't not say, yeah, I want that.
1: Yeah, do I want that, to keep this well, that, ugly website right.
0: that my nephew did or do I want but a you,
1: professional site? But you just mentioned a huge obstacle for a lot of people, and that's telling them what you do.
2: Yeah. A lot, um, of
1: people, a lot of people aren't comfortable going up to strangers and saying, I think, and I think that's the number one fear that people have to get over rejection. when it comes to a side hustle. Is It's not just the rejection. It's like I don't want to make them uncomfortable by just spouting business. I don't want to be the pushy sales guy. As opposed to, I'm proud of what I'm doing, what I'm what I'm capable of doing. I want to help you because I know you can, and you have the ability to come from that. And I, I I think that I hope people listening to this will understand that if you come well, in,
0: you're in sales. I'm in. You've sales. been in
1: sales for years, right? But it's different when you're calling from your office as opposed to meeting somebody at lunch that you don't know, or you're at a party and you start going into like, what do you do for a living? Type conversations when they don't want to go into what you do for a living type conversation. So I, th- I think that if, if anybody can take anything from this part of the podcast is that you weren't afraid to go out there and tell people. You were actually pretty aggressive about it because you were buying their domain name and so that for to That's prep yourself strategy. for future business. I think it's awesome.
2: Yeah, so I could be aggressive with strangers back then, but it was hard. Uh, I'm not the typical guy that'll strike up an elevator conversation and tell you what I do, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's still very hard for me to do that. That's why for years, a lot of people still thought I was in IT when I was in real estate. I mean, no one knew what I did. That was a fault of mine. And when I started advertising what I'm doing and networking more and letting people know, that's when... People that found commercial deals like, oh, gosh, what do you think about this? Right. I'd offer rewards if they can find me a tenant. And that led to a lot more success. Right. So getting yourself out there doing that self-marketing, you're right, does work. But it wasn't it didn't come easy to me.
1: Unless you like you're like Brian from last week or (laughs) you're, you know, it's not easy for I would say 90 percent of the people out there. It's difficult because you're putting yourself out there for, like you said, rejection yeah. But you also don't want to be come across, you don't want to come across as rude. Right. But, you know, at the same time, if you're going to make it, people got to know what you're doing.
2: Yeah. You're absolutely right. It is a pretty fine line, but it's important.
0: And how do you, uh, so you mentioned having to grind, having to work hard, going out and trying to find clients in the commercial world, in the commercial real estate world. How do you, you go in, so your process is let's go out and let's find an underutilized property you see potential in, you stabilize it, bring in some tenants per, how do you find the tenants for the property? How do you, how do you push the property and and get it into the shape you need? Do you have contractors you
2: use? And so for the rehabbing, I started out doing a fair amount of it myself over the years, I've started to use contractors. So now it's almost 100% contractors, but finding tenants, it's still that same level of grind where I'll try to steal tenants from a neighboring strip mall. I'll, um, you know, Craigslist, Facebook, just randomly start hitting up people. If I know that they have a business nearby or a home-based business, I'll hit them up, see if they want to move into an office or a retail strip. It's that same level of grind that I had back in the day when it, when it comes to an empty building because your back's against the wall, right? You, you got to make this thing work. So, yeah.
1: It's- yeah, we're in the middle of that right now. right down the street. We got an elevator we got to put in before we can... Yeah, Well, we got to completely make it ADA compliant. So we have, yeah. We got to reinforce the... We, well, we have to take out the old shaft, put in a new shaft, reinforce the floors around the shaft. And then we have to we have to take it down to the basement. And we thought we were going to use that for the machine room and just flip them because the machine room's on the roof.
0: Does it have an elevator there now?
1: Yeah, it's got two of them. Oh. But the one was... was like, the three of us were... If we got in it together... We would like. I would be facing you, and Asha's back would be my back. It, it, it is. I mean, that's why I wasn't occupied lately. Right. It's it's a beautiful building, but yeah. So I feel your uh, the backs against the wall. The time's ticking, and you didn't anticipate any of that. We didn't anticipate COVID because we bought the building before COVID. Yeah. So we didn't. We anticipated that it was going to take a second because there's six stories, but we thought we're we're in the heart of Covington. It's so it's going to be Class A office space. We're right by the federal courthouse. Somebody's going to want to come in. So
2: what are you guys doing to get tenants in there?
1: Uh, right now, it's just LoopNet. No, uh, come on. Right now, that's what it is. What? Hold on. I've worked. Flip the script here. I'm assuming we'll get a law firm of some sort coming in. Because First Financial oh. just took over an entire building down there too, right? Right across 6th Street from us. Yeah. Right.
0: And then you've got another project happening at the old YMCA, Right. Yeah. Is that what that was?
1: Oh, well, that's it's for twenty
0: million dollar project, right? Yeah,
1: that's what um, the Sawyer's, Sawyer's group is going to read. Is going to expand out Hotel Covington,
0: which they're doing God's work over here. I mean, it's
1: it. They've Guy they've, Guy Van Royen is a genius. They almost single handedly brought Covington back. Well, talk about a grind. He got turned down by fifty banks when and he, he tried to p- when he tried to pitch Hotel Covington. Fifty banks told him no. So, Ash, if you're looking at, do you do any
0: development from scratch? Do you ever break ground on a thing, or are you still out looking for property to fix
2: up? No, I have. um, We built a medical center for my wife, and I realized that I can't build better or cheaper than people that do it all day long every day. So um, that's not where I'm going to make any money.
0: Yeah, we were able to redo this. But the upstairs, that's a whole different world. And I don't even want to get into that. I'd rather have someone, a GC come in here, go out and find the contractors that they're used to working with and they know will do a good job right. and come in here. Because you do, you spend a ton of money on trips to Home Depot, getting the wrong stuff, wasting things because you cut a board wrong. or
2: Yeah. And in the beginning, it was worth my time to do all of that. But now my time is better spent looking for the next deal versus replacing toilets which i still for whatever reason end up doing from time to time but hold on back to kyle you said you assume you'll get a law firm in there how's that going to happen
1: that's a great question through LoopNet. i don't know
2: god damn dude come on hold on why aren't you guys calling every law firm within 50 miles let's start tomorrow find other office tenants nearby see if they want to tour your building Right, put it on your Facebook posts. Take pictures of the renovations. I'm picking on you now, but...
1: Oh, you're fine. Dude, I'm you, to you. How
2: do you sit there and not market the f- shit out of this place? You also had a great article written about you guys. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, so you, there could have been some way to leverage that too. You've guilted me into it. <laughs> yeah. Let's
2: talk when we're done with this, but we got to market the shit out of that place.
1: All right. I No, I'll take the help. Yeah. I appreciate so it. So
2: you can buy lists of expiring leases. I don't know how accurate they are. But you can buy that, start cold calling them.
1: Yeah, I got no problem with that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that sounds awesome.
1: So yeah, what, I, call, what are, I cold call all day anyway. So you
0: just mentioned this this strategy of cold calling and finding these lists. Like, is this all stuff that just happened organic? Did you read this stuff in a book? Did you look up different strategies? Did you do a seminar? What
2: The listing I found, and I've never used it, but the listing I found because the one time that I tried to hire commercial brokers to lease out a space, um, it didn't work. So they had this listing for six months. And they come to me one time and they said, Hey, so we need a big sign up there. It's going to cost $1,500. I'm like, cool, get it done. Oh no. In commercial real estate, the landowner, building owner has to pay all the expenses for marketing. So I paid a $1,500 fee for a sign that just had their name on it that they can reuse. And then they said, we have to do a broker's open house and we can't get brokers here unless we incentivize them. Okay. What do you need to incentivize them? I don't know, something fifty hundred dollars gift, whatever. And I'm like, uh, Fitbit. No, no, everyone has so many Fitbits, everyone does Fitbits. How about a hundred dollar Visa gift card? So I had to go buy twenty hundred dollar visa gift cards to get these brokers to show up. And then they said you gotta incentivize them to bring you a tenant. So, you know, what's a big gift that you can give them? So we decided uh, a vacation anywhere in the world up to $5,000. Like I would pay a travel company five grand and you pay the rest or whatever. So all of this, they had six months. And then I had to pay a couple thousand dollars for this list where they would just sit there and cold call from. And again, they had this for six months and didn't get it done. I got the listing back. Within a month, I signed a five-year lease. And this is that 12,000 square foot place that's difficult to lease because of the lack of parking. And all I did is I put it on every Craigslist in Tennessee, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan. In a month, I had a guy from Detroit who wanted to open a camera store in Cincinnati, came down, looked at it, and ended up buying the building instead of leasing it. So literally just put the grind in. You didn't even know like Detroit of all places. No, but you know, like Craigslist for each major city, they have their own page. Right. So I just put probably, I don't know, a hundred, 150 different Craigslist posts, Mm -hmm. copy and pasted them to each city and got eyes on it. So a hundred
0: different cities. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So what are some of the things that you know now that early OSH, should have known about? Like, what are some of the things, just because I know people are out here, they're probably thinking, hey, what if I wanted to get into commercial real estate?
2: So I'm going to answer that a little bit differently. Thinking about our audience, I heard somebody say, you know, everyone always says, if you have a good deal, the money will come. And it was a Facebook post and everyone's like, yeah, right. It's a bunch of BS, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, it's not. If you have a good deal, you can find the money. And if you didn't, you didn't network hard enough to get it. Right. So it doesn't matter where the property is. You could buy a rundown building in the middle of nowhere. But if there's a good tenant in there or the potential for a good tenant, it'll make you money. Right. So, I mean, I've bought places in Price Hill. I've bought uh, places in Ripley, Ohio, little river town. Um, You can make it work. Just put the grind into it and find somebody to rent it, buy it, whatever it is.
0: And honestly, I mean, if there were more people out here side hustling, you'd be doing a lot better because it'd be a whole lot easier to find people. Yeah. So how
2: about this? So <laughs> let's, uh, let's give an example. So somebody, uh, let's say me back when I was 22, 23, had no money and, um, wanted to just wanted to get paid, find a way to get paid. You could find commercial deals, whether it's, uh, hitting up brokers, uh, f- talking to people that own strip malls, buildings, whatever, And if you could land a good deal where the numbers work, then go out there and pitch it to other high net worth individuals or just people that are in the real estate space, put them together and get a finder's fee, whatever it is, right? But you can easily make money doing that. And you'll learn a lot in the process.
0: So compared to a place like New Jersey... How do you see the market here in Cincinnati and other cities in the Midwest? Is it undervalued here? Or, I mean, do you see a lot more uh, folks from like Chicago and New York and places like that coming in here and taking advantage of it?
2: Yes, because um, coastal cities of Arizona, California, New Jersey, New York, the problem is the cap rates are so low. uh, These people are essentially parking money. They're not growing it. You can't find deals like you find out in the Midwest. So I honestly don't know how a lot of these people have that mindset where they'll buy a $3 million strip mall and barely make any money off of it. They're banking on future appreciation. Are these REITs that are buying up? No, no. Um, so yeah, the REITs are doing it. A lot of high net worth individuals that are in that space, they're just buying. Depreciation. Well, yeah, depreciation is a big one. But again, because historically those areas have appreciated so much, they're banking on that. And that may or may not happen, right?
1: So there, you think they're banking on the resale of something that's so high already that, very, that the exits market is even smaller than 100%. what they bought into? Yep. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's insane.
0: Well, I hear that L.A. is LA's still growing, but places like San Francisco, they've lost when it comes to vacancies. I mean, their vacancy rates up like astronomically. I mean, for a place that, you know, six months ago, we you couldn't probably find a, a vacant space to rent. Well, Manhattan
1: or, had, a, was it in May or May? I think it was May, had a record number of vacant units yeah, in Manhattan. It's happened in there
2: too. 15% of their apartments are vacant. Yeah, it's crazy. never
1: happened. What is it normally, like a 97% occupancy? Oh,
2: who knows, but yeah, it's got to be something insane.
0: So for people listening to this, that, um, you know, we're like you, don't have a whole lot of money, slaving away at a nine-to-five job they hate. This isn't impossible. This is not an impossible feat. This right. is something that if done right and smart and you do your research can happen.
2: Correct. And often I've put out on social media the offer to mentor people. And I get a lot of people that will hit me up and be like, hey, man, I want, to, I, I want to learn what you're doing. I want to do what you're doing. In reality, most of them, when I ask them why they want to do it, usually the answer is, Oh, I want that passive income. I want that mailbox money. Right. And those people, they're never going to achieve it. If they have that mindset, right. They don't understand what it takes to get that mailbox money and that passive income. So everybody that asks me to mentor them, I'll give them the most basic homework assignment. And it's typically find five commercial properties and tell me why you like them or don't like them. Very simple, right? You, You could do it in 10 minutes. And 95% of those people I'll never hear back from. And I honestly don't know if it's afraid of feeling like a dumbass or just not wanting to put the effort into it, right? I mean, they they put the effort into calling me and reaching out. They took
0: that step, but they were afraid to take, see, I've got a guy in here too. colonial life. We just had a conversation yesterday. He's got ads all over the place. Indeed. You name it. Right. And he's got jobs open right now for people who want to work for every 10 people that he goes back. He'll hear back from one of them right now. That's about right. He thinks that's actually due to the fact that the people are getting the extra stimulus money or whatever right now, and they just need to apply to jobs. They have no intention of actually doing the job but I mean, that could be an opportunity for somebody. I mean, why sit on unemployment when you've got an opportunity sitting there? And the same thing with you, you've got a guy who's successful with this stuff that is willing to mentor you and, and totally buck the trend of what people think of folks who are well off.
1: Well, let me, can I give you my first conversation I ever had with Osh? I'd gone to Joe Fairless's uh, best ever real estate conference and he had talked about his uh, best friend Osh, and about all, like what he had learned from him and what they had done with their house and all that. Like, I forget exactly what the whole gist of Joe's presentation was, but I remembered his name. I was like, well, shit, if he's in Cincinnati and we give him a call, he's got to be getting investors to do all the stuff that they say he's doing. And this is funny because you paid to go to this conference. This person's a professional. This is a person who,
0: who gets paid to go out and teach people like you how to do this thing and he's talking about his buddy who's sitting right here in our podcast.
1: I know it's it's pretty cool how it worked <laughs> out. I, like I said, I'm I'm the Forrest Gump of Cincinnati. I just go Wait, into areas. I'm just here,
2: happy to be with you two guys. Oh, I don't know yeah. what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I would be too. I like like I said, I'm like the Forrest Gump here in Cincinnati. So I just go and I just start talking to people, and I turn into I wind up going with meeting all these successful people just because I can't keep my mouth shut. I mean, I talk like a word a, a word a minute. I'm the slowest speaker in the history of the world. I I got him on Facebook, became his friend, and then I messaged him to see if I could talk. And I'm sure now knowing hearing what hearing just says, like, oh, another one of these guys. So I call him up. And I says is this a good time? He's like, yeah, that's fine. I, like he was in the middle of fixing something. He gave me an hour and a half of his time, didn't know who I was, didn't know anything about me, gave me an hour, hour and a half, asked all these questions about what I was doing, about what my plan was, and you want to talk about like feeling like a dumbass? It wasn't because he was rude. You're talking about me? <laughs> what? Oh. No, I, no. Someday, hopefully, I'm smart enough that I can say you are a dumbass, but I don't. I don't see it ever <laughs> happening. But he could have easily just blew me off, and he didn't. And even now, like when he's getting on me about being lazy about not call, not looking up for not looking up potential tenants, that's the mentorship. I mean, that's 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 him reaching out to me because he cares about my success too. So that's my first my first time speaking with him. I learned so much, and he didn't have to give me a time of day. So you're right. These people people will talk to you if if, if you're willing to listen what they have to say.
0: Well, Nash, I think you're probably a lot like me, too, where you feel good helping other people. Like you want other people to be successful, too. I hate seeing people poor. I hate seeing people struggle. I hate going on Facebook and seeing these people complain about their lives. It's just like so miserable. Like I hate that for them. I, if I can help, I totally want to help. That's why we got this podcast right now. It's getting this information out here from people that, you know, the folks that are posting that kind of stuff, they never get an opportunity to meet a guy like Osh.
2: Well, so thank you, Kyle, but it's great to direct somebody's efforts and all their hustle. So the guy that used to cut my lawn, his name is Alex Holt. Well, one day I come outside and I'm like, Hey man, like, tell me about your business. He's like, yeah, I got, you know, two guys, three mowers, a truck, a trailer. And I'm like, how do you spend your time mowing? Like, what do you mean mowing? I'm like, what do you pay this guy to mow? He's like, you know, eight, 10, whatever, 12 bucks an hour. I'm like, why don't you hire another guy? And when you're here, go knock on all my neighbor's doors and be like, Hey, I'm cutting Osh's lawn. Can I quote yours? Like the guy's already got enough hustle in him to where he's doing it just a little bit of redirection and get him to be way more successful. Right. And he's got the platform. Yeah.
0: He's got, he's got a business there. He's right. got, he's got
2: the ability to, to go out and do more lawns.
0: Well,
1: he's going to, I talked to him. He's going to be on here. Cause he's just, he opened up car, car dealership, dealership. Yeah. On top of everything else he's got going on. This is the guy you were mentoring. The yeah. lawn guy.
2: Yeah. 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 And I've done, I've funded some of his flips, helped him out over the years and just a, a good, hardworking, honest kid, that he's going to make it, it's just, just a matter of time, right? But he's definitely got the grind and the hustle in him. He'll work his ass off. So he just needs people like us to direct him a little bit, and he'll kill it. People like you too.
1: We always need to clarify this. I ain't done You're nothing. the sales guy.
2: You've got more sales experience than either one of us, so. So, by the way, let's uh, come back to Kyle. For people that are listening to this, that's another great side hustle. Hit Kyle up and – Find out what you can do to help him get tenants, right? Like That's a great develop some also. marketing strategies for him. I'm sure Kyle will pay you a referral fee for any leases that he signs. So somebody come up with something creative, get on that and get this guy some tenants and then find me some. Cause I, I've, I've got a few vacancies. As I might well. get motivated.
0: He goes, I can get some Starbucks <laughs> gift cards,
2: but literally like somebody sitting at home, you know, what, what can they take out of this podcast? I mean, all these ideas that we did with no money, I mean, it's its not hard to do, especially with all the information that's out there, all the people that are willing to help. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is show some hustle. Don't waste people's time. You know, put the grind in. Don't expect passive income in years one, two, three, four, whatever. I mean, just work, build something, and then figure out you know, where the money's coming from, the passive money.
0: When you said don't expect, I think that's one thing that people get held up on is they go into and they have these expectations going into something. You know, they hear my story. They hear Asha's story. You know, they, they hear other people's story, Brian's story from last week. And they're like, oh man, I could do it. Brian's bringing in 11 mil a year. I have this expectation now that I'm going to make this money, right? You benefited from a down market too. Correct. You benefited from that. Uh, you know, I watch these guys on YouTube and you know, they're young, they're millionaires and I'm listening to their stories and I'm like, Oh man, you just bought houses in LA when the market was in the toilet and everything's gone up. You, you probably didn't even know that was going to happen. So you just benefited from a down market, but there's always a down market.
2: There's always opportunities out there.
0: There's always something out there that you can tap into. It may not be general knowledge, like when 2008 happened, everybody was freaking out. But the thing is, is there were people like you who said, this is a shithole, but I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to turn it around because I know this market's going to turn around. You know how many people think like that? Not many. Most people get scared away. And what is the saying? Uh, Scared
1: uh, money don't make money.
0: Scared money don't make money, (laughs) right?
1: So, hey, let me ask you this now that we're probably going to head into, if it's not a super correction or a depression. What about what COVID's done to commercial spaces? How do you feel about the the change that we're going to see? Do you, I mean, do you have many business, I guess I should preface this. Do you have a lot of businesses inside uh, tax CPA firms or anything like that, where people are working in office space setting?
2: I do. So I've got one office building. The rest, most of the rest is strip malls, uh, retail. So there's always, even now there's a need for small office space, Mm -hmm. right? People want to work from somewhere besides their house. The big box stores are going to be decimated. They're going to have to be repurposed, but those neighborhood strip malls and neighborhood mom and pop services will always be there. So in a dense residential area, You'll need a pizza place. You'll need a hair salon. You'll need an insurance guy. You'll need those necessities to still be there and service the surrounding community.
0: So do you see a, a turn coming then? I mean, because a lot of these big box retailers put mom and pops out of business.
2: Do you see that flipping now? Good question. I think there's there are different types of services. So a JCPenney is not going to be competing with a mom and pop boutique shop do you see the market changing for these
0: small businesses when it comes to these big box retailers? Cause you're right. You know, the JC pennies of the world, they're out of business. I think what Amazon's buying them and turning all their facilities into like a, a shipping hubs or well, something. I
2: think now some private equity group is going to buy JC penny and resurrect them. But yeah, Amazon was planning on doing that. Cause there is a brand there.
0: So JCPenney does have a nostalgic brand.
2: Yeah. 120 year history. Yeah. yeah. So I think what's, you know, I drove by a bunch of vacant buildings today, vacant um, strip centers, you know, florists are gone. Tons of restaurants are gone. People are going to have to think more efficiently about what business they start. So a typical florist, there's no way you're going to survive during COVID. Who's buying flowers right now, right? Who's going to walk into a store unnecessarily to buy flowers, right? I mean, the eight
0: hundred flowers, you're yeah, going to the, call them or- the,
2: the dry cleaners. There's not as many people going into the office. So there's not as many people that worry about having their shirts pressed. Um, so even restaurants, they're going to have to think a lot more efficiently with this can happen again in the back of their mind. So, kitchens or restaurants that serve brunch only breakfast, lunch, they're going to have to get a little bit smarter and maybe, uh, lease out their restaurants for an evening service or pop-up dinner or some other concept or have a delivery company come in and use their kitchen for the evenings. Right. But businesses are going to have to get a lot more efficient the next time around. If you're a florist, you got to have something else. I mean, yeah, a boutique shop, a, a sit-down wine-tasting bar or something.
0: I wanted to ask you about this because you see, like, you know, Force Fair Mall up in Fairfield, right? Like, I mean— some people don't, you know. We got people listening to this podcast from like everywhere now. Like we're getting downloads from like Moscow and Vietnam. So these people
1: don't know what this is. But it was the, buddy. People in Southern Campbell County don't know it for us. <laughs>
0: yeah, they <anymore>. don't <laughs> even know what that is. But but you've got it was like what the third largest mall in America for a while. Yeah, and um, it had everything. You know, it's got like a Cabela's or something like that in there. It used to have a, a club in there. It used to have roller coaster and a Ferris wheel and all kinds of stuff. They're talking about turning places like that into either housing for the homeless, affordable or affordable housing. What opportunities do you see right now in commercial that not only could help that people our listeners can can take advantage of, but also that could be just good for society in general?
2: So I've seen them turn into giant live workspaces, storage spaces. You know, you've seen the trampoline parks that have gone into some of those stores it's a huge challenge trying to repurpose all of that square footage that's about to come online. So it's going to be, there's a good chance. A lot of it will be distribution facilities like what Amazon was going to do that last mile delivery warehouse type locations. You guys have heard of ghost kitchens where, Oh uh, yeah. Downstairs. Yeah. Downstairs.
0: So, so uh, Mavis actually has a, a, a side hustle. She runs out of there because she pays me so much a month to rent the space she needs to recoup some of that is revenue. So she's, you know, she's, it's COVID and everything. So I'm sure her business has declined a little bit because of less events happening. So before that though, she had started kickstart kitchen. So if you're a mom and pop cookie business, you're not allowed to just make cookies out of your house anymore. Like I think the board of health says, no, no, you have to find a commercial kitchen, AKA a ghost kitchen. So she offers up her space to the small entrepreneurs who want to just m- bake something,
2: yeah. So there's just way too much square footage that's about to come online, high class A retail areas. So there, there should be an apocalypse, uh, an apocalypse coming soon for class A retail, and you already see it. All these- class A retail,
0: right? So even like the the Kenwood malls of the world, the nice.
2: Yeah. When you go through those expensive neighborhoods and see those strip malls, you're starting to see a lot more vacancies in them. You know, a lot of those national chains or regional chains are going out of business. So it's, it's going to be a problem. But again, those non class a, you know, heavy residential area, mom and pop retail stores or strips, I think those are here to last for some time.
0: So I met a guy down in Fort Lauderdale I'm friends with. His name's Gary. He's uh, from Australia. He was an orphan. He lived under a bridge as a child alone in Australia. He came to America, started building boats or fixing boats. Next thing you know, he starts a yacht business, sells it. He's 100% owner of this business, 60 mil. So now he does whatever he wants. And, you know, I go over to his house one day, he's got his yacht parked in back of his house. He's on the intercoastal and his yacht's just like, you go out on his back patio and you just get on your yacht and just go to the Bahamas if you want. Right. He told me one time, he was showing me his garage. He had a Rolls Royce Phantom that he bought off one of his neighbors for 150 grand. That's a, what, a $500,000 car. Yeah. He bought it for 150 grand. I was like, whoa, Gary, how'd you get this for 150? He said, I'm in the misery business. I said, what is the misery business? He said, all these people that live around me, most of them can't sustain this lifestyle. So some of them are even doing shady shit, like not paying their taxes. So when they finally catch up to these guys, now they have to pay the piper. So they're selling off their assets or something else happens. I mean, that's just one example, but these guys end up having to sell their stuff. So you're talking about these retail places in good neighborhoods. One of the things that I'm, I've am i known, hey, get out of the bad neighborhood stuff, get into the better neighborhoods. You're finding opportunities right now where there's probably commercial landlords who once these properties go vacant for a certain amount of time, they're going to start getting desperate. And then you can be in the misery business, too.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Go uh, buy places for pennies on the dollar. And I don't like playing in big sandboxes. I'd rather play in smaller ones. So that's why the type of real estate that I've always done, there's not a lot of competition. So, uh, real estate under one, $1. $1.5 million is typically mom and pop. You're not going to find a lot of out of state investors buying those, right? They're all going to buy the the Starbucks, the, you know, national chains, So, um, and also banks don't like loaning on mixed use buildings, mom and pop strips. They don't like loaning on buildings that have some vacancy in them. So, so your
0: competition's a lot lower, right? Because not everybody has cash to bring to the table,
2: right? Or they don't have established relationships with lenders that they've built over 10 years where I could bring them a vacant building. And I know for a fact, they're going to finance it, Right. Because over the years, I've probably overpaid a little bit to establish that relationship. So now-
0: And when you say overpaid, you mean you probably had to put more equity, personal equity into the property. You had to have collateral. You had had to have higher interest interest, rate. Higher interest rate. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, because I've built those relationships, uh, I can go in there and buy some of those properties.
0: And you have a lot of people that are really down on banks. I think one of the biggest problems for people, and my wife just ran into this, she's doing really well. She, you know, obviously writes whatever she can off. I think at some point when you are a business owner, you get to that stage in your business where you can't get a loan because you're not right. You're not keeping enough money because you're writing everything off on taxes, right? Which you should do, but then you're not showing a lot of income because a lot of your stuff is getting written off. Unless you have a
2: relationship with a banker, and they, That's key. Yeah, and they intimately know what your business is, what your finances are, what your balance sheet is. Yeah. Cause a big bank, if they look at you on paper, you're not getting anything, right? Even me. So, um, I went to my CPA cause I found this retirement thing. I'm like, Hey, so can I put money into this? And he's like, gosh, you don't make any money. And I'm like, what? I left there thinking, what do you mean? I don't make, I make more than this guy does. So I went back and I'm like, Hey, so again, can I put money into this? He's like, you don't make any money. I'm like, explain this to me. He's like, you don't make any money. And I thought about it. And because of the real estate, all the depreciation, the write-offs, I don't make any money. (laughs) So that's what they told her. But this woman was an older woman,
0: probably worked at the bank her entire life, bought into that whole nine to five thing, right? But all she is is she's like the banker that talks to the underwriter for you, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe she's making seventy grand a year, eighty grand a year. She tells my wife, "It doesn't look like you've got enough money to put gas in the car to come over here." Ouch! And my wife came home and she was crying. She was like, "Why am I doing this?" She told me, "I don't even have money to put gas in the car." You know, all my hard work, right? Totally. She's making two hundred grand a year right? She's bringing that in between retail and services. Yesterday, she comes home. Her and her worker together made about $4,500 yesterday, yesterday. And this woman is telling her she doesn't have money to put gas in a car.
2: Yeah. That's why I think everybody should bank with a local lender where you get to know them. They get to know you. And in the smaller banks, people don't move around as much. You may think your guy at Chase is awesome. Well, next year he's going to get promoted get relocated and you're starting all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: What are some local banks and you can go ahead and name them. I mean that, that you think are, uh, are really good local banks like in Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati.
2: So I've been very loyal to center bank, but there is spring Valley Valley central. I would just look for banks that have three or less locations,
0: three or less locations. Okay. Because they're hungry for business. They need to put their money to work.
2: And they believe in personal relationships as much as
0: you do. And these people are kind of growing with the company, and that makes sense. What did you guys do uh, to raise capital for the for the building down on Madison for the Old Republic Bank building?
1: Well, I mean, Republic's there. Yeah. yeah. So we went through. We went through Republic. I mean, we we raised. We have five shares, and our contractor and our architect split one. Um, then there were three other groups that got in, and then I raised. With Spartan Capital, we did a small raise. I think we raised like 275000 or something for it. But a
0: majority of the project is financed with equity and not debt.
1: No, it's with debt. Is it? Yeah, well, we have – so we bought – so we put $780,000 down. We purchased it for $2 million, but we have a budget of about $2 million, $2.1 million to, gotcha. to renovate. But,
0: but the architecture, the, the labor, since you gave some of that –
1: They're they're, equity away. They're deducting some of their, like they put down money themselves, but they didn't put down, I think each share was worth like $255,000. But it sounds like you got creative. Yeah, I had to. You
0: had to get creative.
1: Because the return wasn't going to be fantastic.
0: Well, Nosh, you you do a lot of business investment also. Correct. You see a lot of companies that haven't done anything, but want to hold on to their equity like their Amazon. So- what do you see? I mean, do you think that is a, that keeps people from being able to get their ideas off the ground because they think so much of their idea, idea, not company idea that they are hesitant to go out and get investors.
2: They're not hesitant to get investors or hesitant to give up equity. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I mentor this kid back in the day, college kid started making t-shirts and I forgot what he wrote on the t-shirts. But he wanted me to give him like $30,000 so he could fly to LA, get a bunch of models to wear his t-shirts, and I could pay for his uh, cell phone and give him a car allowance. And I'm thinking, like, are you out of your mind? You know, get some revenue, get some sales, and then come back with a set of balls like you have now, you know? Mm -hmm. Because they've seen other people get insanely rich almost overnight. They think that their idea or their t-shirt or whatever they're pitching is worth what they think it is.
0: And this is why I like Shark Tank. Like when you watch Shark Tank, for me, I'd go into Shark Tank and be like, yeah, right, like these valuations (laughs) is crap. But that's actually, a lot of times they, they kind of put people in their place.
2: Yeah, and listen, man, when you're starting something up, it's you're grinding, you're hustling, and you're not making anything. You're not making any money. Any money that you are making is going back into your business. You're not living large until you actually make it. So, you know, if you're still, um, getting your idea off the ground or, uh, still on the up and up, like eat shit and just continue to put your head down and grind. I know a guy. Yeah. Don't expect money to start coming in and the money will come in when you deserve it.
1: We did our, when we were, when we were doing our pitch for the sparring capital part for this building, it was like, we're going to give you X amount. And a few people were at retirement age and they were like, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, that's that's right about where I'm making right now with being out of stocks and being as diversified as we are and who knows what's going to happen with the bond market. But the, young, the younger guys, and I say younger, I'm talking more 45 to 60. They were like, hold on a second. You're me a loan. Basically, I'm giving you a loan at, at, the, at this percentage and then I'm not getting any of the upside. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no. So we had to get really creative on what we were, what we were willing to give back because like you said, you got to put money back in the business but you also have to have a track record of some sort for people to take those, the, take the lower income or the you know, lower percentage return because it's a big risk getting in with somebody that hasn't done anything. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the hard part. Is And that that's I think, 90% of people. Right. And I think that this is going to, I should be making a killing off of this part of it. But the person that's the most important, the one that you're actually ultimately going to be responsible to is looking at it like, I'm not. Uh, you're not going to run your experiment on my bill and not mean only get at, uh, at the best, like 8% or 7%. They are, they expect, or if it's a business that they're starting they're they're expecting to get at least 50% if they're putting the capital up and 50% is being very nice.
2: So that's a better answer to your question. That t-shirt guy, he should have not cared about his cell phone or his car allowance. He should have only cared that his business blows up. So that the next time he starts a clothing brand, he can say, listen, I started this when it blew up, right? So get that track record first, even if you're not making any money off of it, just get it done, get through it. You've got that under your belt. You got the street cred now, and it's easier the second time around.
0: What do you look for in investment opportunities when it comes to small businesses or startups?
2: I'm pretty emotional when it comes to that. So that's why I put together this investment club that you guys are a part of. I would, for whatever reason, probably just through excessive networking, I'd get pitched a lot of startup ideas. I would always be hesitant on if I should move forward or not. So I put together this group, which is basically mine and Kyle's network, combined together, and now when we hear a pitch, we have all these collective brains thinking they have varied backgrounds from different industries and we can collectively decide on if we're going to invest or not, even though it's an individual investment, you have everybody's thoughts coming into it so you can make a better educated decision. So if it was just me, I probably wouldn't make good decisions. That's why I've got this whole team of people, including you guys in on these decisions.
0: Well, and I think too, for me, I want everybody to do well. If they've gotten to the point where they've got a pitch deck together, they're coming and they're sitting in front of me and they're pitching and they've like they've got their stuff together. Even if I don't think it's a good idea and I don't think it's going to work or I don't really like the team, I'm still kind of wanting to throw some money at it just because I, you know, I'm like, Oh man, these poor guys, like they're working they're trying to do something. And maybe if I invested in them and give them some, some, mentorship, they'll do something, but sometimes the idea is just so bad. You're just, you got to pull yourself away from it.
2: Yeah. And I'm the exact same way. That's why I need voices of reason around me to make better decisions. That totally makes sense.
1: Yeah. I, I, for me, it's tough to, I don't really know the numbers well enough for most of this stuff. I just know the team. Like I, my, my whole thing is that they have a good team. Then I can, I feel more comfortable, like with your background, with, with Sandy's background or with the way that 10 XTS is set up with the team that they have. Like, I I felt it's all, all that's an educated guess, but I I felt, I feel very comfortable.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, you know, a guy like Sandy, I'm kind of lucky to have him as a business partner too, because I mean, he's how many, how many startups do you see a guy come in who's 60 years old and is grizzled and's like, you know, been in the, the commercial real estate world, like the hardcore JLL, like Collier's commercial real estate world and knows that like, the back of his hand, right? Like he can talk to anybody about commercial real estate. You know, it's just crazy impressive. And a lot of times what you see with startup people is you see kids that are in school still, or maybe right out of school. And I know that there's a, there's a stat out there that when we sold dot loop, someone told me, and they said one in 100,000 startups sell for over a hundred
2: million dollars. I believe it.
0: So your chances, and, and think about it: if you're coming in maybe late to the game, maybe you've got one or two percent of a company, or just you know something small, maybe not even that much, and you've got a one in one hundred thousand chance that they're going to sell for over a hundred million. And a lot of times, I mean, even if they send, sell for tens of millions, you still might not even make your money back. Like you got to find those big hits, like those big home run. People And it's one out of 100,000. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, you're a fund and you get one big exit out of every 12 companies you invest in. And that big exit may be 20 mil. You know, and maybe a little over ten or something, just so you can get some money back out of the fund and get yourself even, or you know. And then you hear all these underhanded things that these venture capitalists do. And I just, you know, you got to be careful when you're a startup and you're going out and you're trying to raise money. You know what? What you put together with with the group, you've got a lot of people who've done well for themselves, who are coming in at the early angel stage. This isn't even like you haven't even gone to an angel company like Queen City Angels or anything yet. This is. Just after you do the friends and family thing, maybe you've got a product together that you, you know, you scraped $50,000 together together for and you were able to build something that you could bring to this group and show them. But most of the time, even when you come to a group as early as yours, you still have to have a product. You still have to have uh, some sort of customers or somebody at least interested in what you're doing or some kind of like MOU signed a lot of times. So, it's getting harder and harder. And I think investors what's are getting an, more
1: sophisticated. What's an MOU? We, we use acronyms, but people. It's may a memorandum not. of understanding. Okay. And what's that?
0: So it's essentially a document that says, hey, yes, we want to use your product or we want to partner in some way, whatever is defined in the contract. For
1: example, with C Prop, you guys have a memorandum of understanding with Juai, right? Juai. Yep. yep. Out of China. Yep.
0: Not made it any easier.
1: But, that, <laughs> so, but, but at the point before the world ended,
0: that was, that was the a, MOU.
1: That, yeah, before, so before the world ended, that was the big step for you guys. That was a big major step, and there was a lot of conversations back and forth about that. Like international, it's it's an international Zillow for China, exactly. so to speak. Pretty it's, pretty for, much. it's for buying. It's like prop. Baidu is is Google and things like that. So yeah. it's buying. It's for buying real estate in the United States, and in, for the last however long billions of dollars every year come in from china foreign foreign investors
0: it it was until and it recently. Stalled recently there was a lot of money like especially if you look at vancouver the market in vancouver was outrageous you got houses that aren't even meant like you could barely even put your tools in there. Right. And right. a lawnmower and well, that's, it's selling for a million dollars. You know, you're like, what is going on? And it was mostly foreign investors, Russian and Chinese investors for the most part. But what,
1: but what you guys did was you landed in one of the largest portals for what your product was, which uh, we, I don't need to dive into it too much, but that's enormous because you're, you're like, you're a tag, you're a link, you're a tag on, on the, on that portal. So that everybody can access all the do- the property taxes, they can access the con- contracting network, they can con- everything you need for uh, when you buy a house. Yep. And that is that is the
0: getting in the door with a company like that is really difficult. I mean, look at all the companies that sell things that want to get in with Walmart, right? And then Mal- Walmart ends up beating them up on margin. The thing is, is you go to some of these other places and you're from America right they think oh well, of course i want to partner with them because they want to get into this market as bad as we want to get into their market maybe even maybe even more
1: so that's what he was dealing with for a while there with the commercial spaces it was these these people coming these these groups coming over and trying to get into areas where the cap rates still pretty high that they can get their they can make more bang for their buck
2: yes but I, so one of the takeaways is and this is what i'm getting is that if you have a product a service a company whatever expect to do it for the most part yourself don't rely on investors coming in make it work yourself at all costs yes you can't you can't go in with the mindset saying well you know I'll get this uh, up and running a little bit and then I'll get some investors and I'll cash out no, you got to, you got to put the own work. You got to put your own work in. You got to get it done. Yeah. I knew a People guy People aren't going to bail you out. Yeah. I knew a guy
0: as soon as he raised his first round and it wasn't even that much. It was around $400,000. The guy goes out and buys a, a BMW, uh, five series for him and his wife, two of them. Good for him. <laughs> I mean, he thought he made it right. He thought yeah. he, he thought he made it He for, you know, it's probably more money than he's ever seen in his life. He had $400,000 in the bank. Oh, it'll, it'll stretch right. That money goes real fast.
1: Have you had anybody that's made it so then you've watched them and you're like you're making poor life decisions right now, son? Um don't know names or anything, but have you?
2: Yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: yeah. So like I what I don't know. How does that feel like you you've spent all this time helping them? You you don't oh, knowing no, you. No, no, you, no, you no, sorry, all?
2: not people that I mentor, just oh, people okay. in general. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We used to have that at at, when we first started with TQL, guys would do well for the for, for first couple of weeks or, four, you know, a month and a half. And then the very first thing was like a fancy car. And then two months later, inevitably, the customer's gone. And they're in this car with like a $600 a month car payment. And they're making, they're back to doing $35,000 a year. And it's like,
0: no. People got to understand, like, your perspective on money changes once you start doing big deals like this. And right. you start, like, you bring in $100,000 a month. People are like, whoa, you're bringing in $100,000 a month? That's not a lot of money.
2: Yeah, but on top of that, you know, if I see somebody buying a $200,000 car, I think about the strip mall that I could have bought with that money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, different mindset. It's
0: right? one of the reasons I still drive a 2007 Chevy Silverado sitting out there.
1: Assets versus liabilities.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I mean, this is we're going back to what the banks want to see. Right. You got to, you know, two $700 a month leases— on cars, you you know, and you're not bringing in that much. How much are you paying yourself with $400,000 in the bank? You know, I mean, you're not, uh, hopefully you're not paying yourself a hundred grand.
2: And how do you find a second round when they ask what you've done with your money? How do you fund a second round? You don't, right? Oh wait, you bought two cars. Yeah. Let's give you more money.
0: Yeah. You're, you're paying yourself. What?
1: Right. You obviously, you obviously uh, really appreciated all the, sacrifice that these people make giving you that cash and taking a huge roll of dice on you.
2: Yeah. So I posted something on the Cincy side hustle site. There's a guy by the name of Will Crozier and he's just killed it in commercial uh, multifamily real estate. He's now an angel investor. He's doing a lot of charity work in the Philippines. Um, One of the angel companies he's investing in the founder asked him, so what am I going to get paid? He wrote him this long email that said, listen, Um, Here's my story. So I started out for the first six years not making any money at all. I had a part-time, I had a full-time job. And um, that was funding my apartment buying, rehabbing. The next six years of my life, I quit my full-time job and I started working part-time because I still needed some money coming in, but I didn't take any money out of my business. He's like, in year 12, I sold one of my apartment buildings and I received the check for two million dollars. I was able to pay off my debts. He had at that time he had two hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt. So for twelve years, he kept his head down, didn't live large, lived in a shitty apartment, um, paid all of his employees, paid his contractors, paid his architects. Everybody got paid except him. And it wasn't until year twelve that he finally was able to get some money out of the business. So when you have a a startup, a founder saying, hey, man, what am I getting paid? Are these young kids coming in saying, hey, man, what am I going to make? No man, put the grind in. The money's going to come later if you stay the course and if you've gotten all, you know, if you've got a good product, good service, whatever, uh, stay the course, stay passionate about it, just keep hustling. The money will eventually come. But trying to get paid early on, that doesn't work.
0: If you were in your 20s right now, where would you... And you were working a nine to five, you know, some of the people that are listening to this, there's some people on here that are probably even younger than that. You're 25 years old. You just graduated school. You're a couple years in, you're making 50 grand a year, whatever. What that's you right now. So say,
2: say that you, where do you start? So I would have focused on something and every day spend a little bit of time learning about it, uh, networking with people. Because the days go by, the weeks go by, then the months go by. And before you know it, 10 years have gone by. So what these people that are serious about a side hustle, every day something's got to happen. I don't care if you're reading a blog, watching a YouTube video. Every single day, it's got to stay in the forefront of your mind. Then network with people that are in the industry that have a lot more knowledge than you do about what it is you want to do. And make sure you add value to whoever you're asking to mentor you. But again, just every day, something's got to happen. You can't save it for the weekends and then something comes up. You know, you're going out to the bars, you're hanging out with your buddies.
0: You're going to get a call. You're yeah. in your twenties. Somebody's going to call. Or,
2: you know, you start dating a new girl, all your time goes with her every day. Something's got to happen. You got to put that grind in. we
1: listened listen to Jerry Seinfeld stand up over at the Aronoff, And that's what he said. He goes, every time I go anywhere, I have a young comic who thinks he's the next mm-hmm. coming of, you know Eddie Murphy or Dave Chappelle, he said. I tell them the same thing, and the eye, the look in their eyes when I tell them this is like I just took their soul out of their body. He said, all, you, all if you want to become a comic, you write every day. Doesn't have to be a long. It just w- write an observation that you thought was different. Just it doesn't even have to be funny. Just an observation every single day. That's how you make it.
2: And by the way, back to your earlier point, Adam about the timing was right in 2012 when I got into real estate. Well, even back then, five times a day, I would look at every property that every commercial property that came online in a 50 mile radius. So I got the jump on a lot of these before anybody else because every day, five times a day, at least I was looking at what's popping up, what's up for sale. And a lot of these properties I literally got because I was a first one to the table with an offer or other properties that, you know, were inside deals, I would just be relentless and break up the inside deal and try to inject myself in there. But it was, it was a shit ton of work. None of this came easy.
0: So at the end of the day, hard work, finding opportunities and things that may not be obvious in, in, in timing, timing seems to be a big one. I mean, when the more people I talk to the more wealthy people I find it, I learned that, they got on a they got on something other people were scared to get on. They at it, it, the time. I mean, commercial real estate. I mean, man, going into that first deal you had in Clifton, it can be a bad
2: area. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was yeah,
0: bad. Yeah, I mean, you probably got drug dealers hanging out in front of the building, and you're trying to, oh, you yeah. know, yeah. I mean, it's it's just one of those things, and and you went into a place that looked like that during a time when everybody was thinking that, you know, it'd be another decade before commercial would come back.
2: Yeah. And And you buying vacant, uh, vacant buildings as well. Yeah.
0: And apartments, I mean, the apartments upstairs too, and tenants trash and everything. And I mean, people got to understand too, like, uh, you know, I brought this up, I think in the first episode, you know, if I'm a tenant, for some reason, they've got it in their head that, you know, the landlord's this multi-billionaire and can just do whatever. Right. When people move out of a house, maybe you give, you know, your security deposits 1200 bucks, right? Most of the time, when I've had people move out of my places, and I've learned not to even put carpet down anymore. Um, I mean, that was after the first couple of them. I'm like, no more carpet, right? But it's $5,000,
2: right?
0: Maybe even 10, depending on what they did to the cabinets, you know, And, and I mean, the toilets, I mean, everything like, it's crazy how much people how destructive people can be. And You know, people think, oh, I'm going to be owned to residential real estate. Everything's going to be good. There is so much stuff in residential. You don't even factor in that you're going to be coming out of pocket for. And it's not an easy business to be in.
2: Yeah. You get one bad tenant that'll destroy years worth of work.
0: Yeah, destroy your cash flow, not just for that month, but for the whole year,
2: probably. Yeah. None of this is easy. None of it is super smooth. There's always bumps in the road but if you're passionate about it man it's it's awesome doing something that you love doing right so like i don't see myself retiring not doing real estate i mean you could do this stuff from anywhere i see opportunities
0: every time i go on vacation like i go to bali and i'm like oh man i I should buy that place right there and like you start, you get really hyped up when you go on trips and you think, Oh, I should, I should get that. Like, I'll come back to Bali. Right. You know, I'll come back to Paris
2: or whatever. So I'm like that every time I drive by a strip mall, I'm thinking, what are they paying? You know, what's the condition of the roof? What's the landlord like? Yeah. There's always opportunities out there.
0: Do you have something written down? Like, do you, is there any, like, do you have any processes that you go through? When you go and look at a property, or is this just kind of all by the seat of your pants?
2: No, I wish I was more systematic and process oriented, but um, a lot of what I do is just shooting from the hip. So every day I'll look through 50 to 100 listings and I could quickly scroll through them and I could identify which ones have potential. Um, I, probably because I've been doing it for so long. Um, I could just identify it. But no, if I did have systems and processes, I'd probably be a lot better off. But I don't.
0: I don't think I've met. Even Brian said that last week. He said that he doesn't. He just kind of did it.
2: So there's a book called Rocket Fuel. Have you guys read that? Mm -mm. So um, you know, for years, my whole life, I thought that I was selling myself short because I didn't have all these systems in place. I was not a taskmaster. But what this book talks about is you're either a visionary or a taskmaster. Very rarely is anybody both, right? So the visionaries have to find taskmasters to accompany them on these. That's one
0: hundred percent true. I hate sitting there in QuickBooks. Yeah. I hate-, I hate looking at analytics. I'm not that person. I'm the idea person. Like I wanna go out and look at the idea. So in like C prop, I'm the idea person. Sandy is the taskmaster. Yeah. Sandy will sit down in a weekend and write a ten-page white paper, and I won't even be able to read it. Like I'm like, what is he talking about? Yeah, that's, like,
1: that's what we have. I, I I go. I like to pitch the idea. I like to talk to investors. I like to you know to ex- explain Joe's vision because Joe's. If you let Joe, Joe will go through the clouds with, with his imagination and guy just, it doesn't stop. And it's, it's all, most of his ideas are fantastically cool, but then you have his brother, Ben who, who's um, works for a subsidiary of general electric. He is a project manager. He was, he was in the middle East with uh, their energies division forever. So he's had billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of projects as he, he's had to oversee, and it is it's, it's it's whip cracking time when he looks at something and he wants to know it now he wants he wants to know where we're at in cash burn like it's 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 a great balance for us to have it is because a lot of
0: the times you just kind of let that you know you're like oh, I'll get to it later I'll get to it later like working with Sandy it's like I got a boss. Like, you know, cause he's such a stickler for everything and he'll yell at you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a co-founder with you. Like, what are you yelling at me for? But I'd say Sandy regularly gets excited about anything. He's the one who always says no, no to everything. Doesn't matter. No. Right. I'm kind of in the middle towards like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm open to it. Like I'm pretty optimistic. Right. Luke, on the other hand, is like way out there. Like he's like, oh, man, we got this thing. He's like off on this direction. and He wants to go off on this direction. So it's good to have like a team that complements you. And you're, you're mostly doing a lot of this by yourself. But I can imagine your kids
2: are going to be part of this team at some point. That and your be, wife. Yeah, that would be ideal. Probably not my wife. Uh, my kids would be great. But yeah, so for people that are like that, it's not a flaw. It's just how you're wired. And you've got to find a taskmaster to offload all the things that you're not good at.
0: And there's a place for Taskmaster. Like in a company, I mean, you can still be an entrepreneur and be a Taskmaster. Like every company needs somebody like that in there. Absolutely. Like we need those founders. We need those introverted people who are just going to put their head down on the computer and type away all day. Well, that's
1: why, I mean, that's why TQL is successful. You have Ken, who's extremely, like we talked about in the first episode, extremely driven. But he's also willing to say, maybe I can't do all of it. A lot of people aren't... Uh, That's a, lot, a
0: hard thing to... Yeah, exactly. To, you have to have. You have You to be introspective.
1: Yeah. And so he hired people and he allowed them to do their jobs. And they were great at their jobs. And the end result is you now have a M- Goliath who every year is inching closer and closer and closer to that number one spot in the country in freight brokerage because he was willing to say... I can't do this on my own there are certain things that maybe I, I, I just I don't have enough time in the day and as much as I want to do everything because I think I can do it the best I gotta let go of certain aspects of it from the, on the day to so, day so that I can I'm, be, I'm better served doing something else like I don't know the details of everything because trust me I'm as far from the executive branches in that company as you're going to get but it's just my observations from watching. And you've been there for years. In. Yeah, so. from the outside in. And so he hired guys like Kerry Byrne, who came from Fifth Third, and is a genius when it comes to the business community in Cincinnati and across the country and how what it took to take TQL infrastructurally to the next level.
0: When Osh even mentioned that early in his st- first startup, you realized your designs look like poo and you were like, Hey, I got to bring in a designer. I got to bring in somebody who knows how to do this.
2: I'm better suited for this role. Yeah. But the other problem in addition to that was I also did all the sales. I was the billing person, the collection person. So that doesn't work here. The sales guys trying to make all your clients happy. And then you're trying to get money out of them, which makes you the enemy. Then, and that's right. the
1: greatest conflict in almost any business is your sales versus your uh, your receivables, right? Because you're like, I want to, you know, they want they want whatever you're selling, and receivables and credits. Looking at it, and they're thinking, they're they're overextended by fifty thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollar line. So we are now fifty, we're fifty percent over, or one hundred fifty percent over what we want to be, and now. You're asking for more? You're asking us to send them more stuff without payment? And
2: with me, the make them happy sales guy always won. So if they're like, hey, listen, I'll pay you next week. I'll pay you next month. Mm-hmm. Um, I would buy it and still do more work for them. And then at some point, you know, you got to cut ties and yeah.
0: Well, and what Have you ever done your Myers-Briggs? Years ago. Do you remember what you were? I don't. I'm an ENTP. Do you know what you are?
1: Carl? I've no. I've done so many. I've done disc. I've done the numbers. I've done A B C D stuff. I don't. I don't know if I've ever done Myers Briggs.
0: A startup group here, a venture capital firm down the street here. The owner of that has come up with like you don't even call him if you want to come pitch to them. You can't call. You go through a personality test essentially as part of this uh, online wizard. You have to to walk yourself through. But he told me one time that. INTJs are the number one thing they look for, and that's an introverted person. But it's funny because I think my co-founder at Dotloop was an INTJ potentially when he first started. I think he's now an ENTJ because he's done so much public speaking and things like that. What does all that mean? The introverted, the INTJ, and actually we're going to do a show on this. I'm going to bring Vance Van Drake in here. Okay, He's an attorney at Ulmer & Byrne. He knows a ton about this. He's also an ENTP like me.
2: Do they want somebody that's introverted so that they can make them a taskmaster and they become the visionaries? So the, the VC firm is the visionary now.
0: That's actually a good point. I haven't even thought about that, but that might be, you might be right.
2: Because imagine trying to manage a visionary, right? Oh, to the like worst. If somebody, if you had to take direction from somebody that controlled your company. Keep it. That's a tough one.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I can't work for other people Yeah, is I can't work for somebody who I feel like is not as smart as me. Or doesn't have the same vision as I do. Right. Right. Or, or, or I'm like, man, why do you just want to keep doing this when we could be doing this? You All
1: know, and I think, I think we're talking to about 95% of the people listening to this podcast right now fall in that category. It's
2: corporate America.
1: Well, yeah, You're trained. Well, not just, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, but I'm talking about the guys that are doing their side hustles as they become successful. They're going to run into that same mentality where this is my baby. I've created it from here and I don't, think that you're going to be able to help me where I need it, where I need help the way that I would like to do it. Mm. it is like giving up of control, I think is going to be the major obstacle for people that get their businesses off the ground from this group.
0: And that's true. You don't want to give up complete control. You also don't want to feel like, Oh, I just gave some of my company to this nefarious group who wants to kick me out and take complete control. Like you get worried about that kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, you need mentors, right? You need people who have done this before. And they've seen this a hundred times. Like this is your first, if this is your first or even second run through, they've had a hundred of these and they know what they're doing, but You do have to watch out and there's tons of videos out there on YouTube of like what to look for in a VC and what to watch out for in a VC and things that you should make sure you have in your contracts. In
1: case you didn't know, VC is venture capitalist.
2: Venture capitalist. But a lot of, sorry, a lot of what you're talking about goes back to the basic guy, Alex Holt, the lawnmower guy, right? Look at your time, look at what it's worth, look at how you're using it. So if you're, if I'm the sales guy, but also doing collections, I should have hired that out. Easily, right? I mean, that, that would have been a no-brainer in hindsight. Um, I don't think that it was pride or ego. It was, again, uh, fear of feeling like a dumbass is why I didn't ask for help or why I didn't hire that out. Because if I told somebody to collect on all this bad debt, they'd have been like, oh, what are you doing, you know? So um, if you gauge where your time is best spent, I think it's easier to come to that decision mm. and give up, a part of your company or a part of the control.
1: Yes. But the continue with your strength, hire for your weakness. Right.
0: And then hire fast or hire slow, fire fast. That's another thing. supposed like to Yeah. Hire slow, fire fast. You got to get rid of people. Um, even in um, Ray Dalio's book principles, he talks about um, you can't, you can't manage people and want to like feel for them. Like you're running a business. This is a machine and every person plays a role in that machine. And if, if they start failing at what they're doing, if you can't reposition them, you've got to get rid of them.
1: We have four books right now that we've already, we've given shout outs to that we should probably put in the show link.
0: I probably should. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring one, one last thing up because I mean, we're almost two hours into this at this point, but I wanted to bring one more thing up. We, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but in America, people our entire education system i feel like is positioned to train people to be wage slaves to be workers right mm-hmm. you 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 get good grades in high school so that you can get into a good college so that you can then get good grades in that college so that you can be at the top of your class so you know mckinsey will want to hire we'll you
1: give they give you they give you cheap money well not as cheap as i thought it should be but they give you <laughs> they give you loans to 18 year old kids, they would never give once they graduated for a house, they'll give it to them for their education. So now they're stuck with monthly payments at 400, $500 a month for 15 years. So they've made it even more so that you're dependent on corporate America.
2: So I think the solution to that, and it's starting to happen is a lot of these wall street banks are even coming to grips with the fact that they're going to have to start hiring kids that are not college educated. Now the flip side to that is you should be able to hire a kid that's 18 years old for $20,000 because they're getting a great education. Right? So I think in lieu in the future, in lieu of college, it'll be, listen, I worked for Morgan Stanley for two years. I went to work for IBM for two years. And that to me is way more valuable than a four-year degree. Oh, yeah. right. I think back to your first job. How much did you learn on the job versus all the years of college? Right. I mean, wh- what did you really learn in college besides um, a lot about yourself, social life, and how to, I guess, maybe analyze decision-making processes. Right. But for the most part, in terms of practical knowledge, I think everything is learned on the job. So if these companies start hiring kids out of high school, mold them the way that they want without paying them a lot, they'll be able to see which ones fit their organizations and which ones don't.
1: Well, they could take a journeyman, they could take a trades approach and instead and make them, you know, apprentices. Exactly. And and then in five years they become journeymen. Like you go to a law firm, you don't, you're not partner right away. And just
2: just like a journeyman, you'll easily know which kids are not cut out for being an electrician or a plumber. Mm-hmm. And then they can go to a different trade. So the Morgan Stanley kid at 18 years old realizes he's not cut out for the finance world, go into marketing, go into real estate, go into a different path. Right. But to me, that should become the new college.
1: And, well, you increase his economic, like are the whole point of this, this, this group in, increasing economic inclusion. Yes.
0: Yeah, making sure everybody, because capitalists, like I said last time, capitalists don't want anybody to be poor. People think capitalism is this evil word and it's so bad. No capitalists, they want to You know, they want people to be broke and slaves and everything else. That is not true.
1: Real capital, pure capitalism is not evil.
0: Yeah, and most capitalism is driven by small and medium-sized businesses. It's not driven by the Amazons of the world necessarily. I mean, it's driven by people like us who hire people to do jobs. And, you know, hopefully we make money and they make money and everybody's happy.
2: Yeah, if you want to learn more about capitalism, Google uh, Peter Schiff.
0: He's a Peter huge Schiff. proponent
2: yeah. of capitalism. Peter,
0: Peter Schiff gold. does hate Bitcoin. He hates. <laughs> it's probably because he loves gold so much. He shills gold. He is gold member. Yeah. Oh man, he's all about it. I love gold. <laughs> so no, we should do at the end of each one of these podcasts because we did this with Brian too. Like, what does the future look like? Right. So to you, Ash, what does the future look like? You talked a little bit about these kids going out and doing stuff. I would imagine if I'm a kid right now, it might make sense to go into a trade, learn a little bit about plumbing, learn a little bit about electric electrical work. If I'm even going to start doing what you do.
2: Yeah. So when we were kids, I don't think we were exposed to what kids today are exposed to in terms of being an entrepreneur. Right. And now it it seems like it's everywhere. So hopefully uh, a lot more young people, take that route or, you know, even if it's a side hustle, whatever it is, but kind of take your destiny in your own hands versus the traditional uh, college, get a job and hope you don't get fired before the age of 65. So you get your pension and then live out the remaining years with whatever monthly payment you're getting, right? Like take control of your financial future because companies are not going to be loyal to you. If they want to lay you off, you're gone that day. If you want to quit a company, you're going to give them two, four weeks notice. So that's a one way loyalty, right? A lot of people don't leave jobs because, oh, this company has been really good to me. You know, I could make more money, but they've been really good to me. Well, that, again, that loyalty is one way. So um, in the future, I'm hopeful that a lot more kids don't get stuck into a path where they kind of take more control over their future, their financial well-being, um, you know, change jobs, learn what you want, learn what you're passionate about. Um, and I think more companies, again, will take on kids that have little to no college, put them through a training program so that they get to uh, kind of like a journeyman approach, figure out if that's what they want to do. And I think it's a win-win because the companies can also tell if this is a good fit or not. And if that's not a good fit for what they're training for, Maybe, you know, this personality or whatever can go to another department or another line of work, right? But now these companies have investments into these kids. These kids have better resumes versus just a four-year degree where you really didn't learn much.
0: Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, hands-on, work, do something. So if you're going to get into commercial real estate, do you feel like it's a necessity um, are you, I mean, did you learn a lot of this, like the the way of building systems work?
2: Did you learn a lot of that on your own, or did you? It was a hundred percent on my own. Um, you know, the first time I bought a building with a sprinkler system in it.
1: Oh God, it was sprinkler like, you know, systems!
2: Uh, you know, the holy shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just I, I don't know that you can learn. I, I have not found any good books that teach you all of this stuff. You took the Cornell course. Did you, did that cover? A the Cornell of- course
0: was actually really good. It, it helped me to to understand the difference between, you know, family office money versus REITs versus, you know, all the different types of investors. And then what do they do? Like essentially the REIT manages the building, but they don't necessarily have to own the building. Right. It helped me break some of that stuff down. And then also they provided a lot of Excel documents that you just plug numbers into. And it's like, is this building worth investing in?
2: Okay, so that's the problem. Uh, If you plug numbers from my properties into a building when I bought them, it would not work. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, he always says buy for cash flow. I'm the opposite. I want something that's not cash flowing. So my numbers don't work in any of these spreadsheets. It's not cash flowing when you buy it, but it becomes a cash flowing property. Excuse me. Yes, but I think he's an advocate of only buying cash flowing properties. Oh, gotcha. So... um,
0: Which is, I think a lot of times, like if you talk to brokers, like people who are out here trying to find, you know, they've got investors and they're trying to find property. They are trying to look for property that, you know, property has businesses in it. It's cash flowing, it's making money.
2: And you'll make some money. You'll make your 10, 12, 15% returns doing that. But if you want to kill it, that's when you're buying properties that nobody else wants and you're turning them around. And this is your niche.
0: This is something that you you can keep going after because these investors that are looking for cash flow, they're never going to get in, in, what you're doing. Right. They're, they're just not interested. Right. They're,
2: they're not going to have the boots on the ground to, you know, make the phone calls um, market locally. Uh, let the, all the local realtors know that this is what you're looking for. You'll pay them a hefty finders fee. So yeah, again, it's, I like playing in my own sandbox versus competing with, A million other people that are doing the same thing.
0: And do you think narrowing your focus like that really helps? Because you know, a lot of people they go off on these different tangents. If I'm an investor, a real estate investor, I might do a little residential, I might do a little, some strip malls I might do. So, so you're, you're focused.
2: Yeah. So I don't like dealing with residential tenants. So I'll do any kind of real estate that doesn't deal with residential tenants. And if I do, you know, so recently we did some more multifamily mobile home parks, but all of those are with partners. That are the managers, right? I don't want to deal with those tenants. I'd rather deal with business owners that are my tenants versus residential tenants.
0: How attracted are you to other investment opportunities? We talk about the stock market on the show as well. What about? investing in REITs, things with, 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 um, really nice interest rates where you don't really have to do anything.
2: Right. Good question. So I think the one metric everybody should look at when they're investing, no matter what they're investing in is annualized cash on cash return. So you can take your annualized cash on cash return from real estate, compare that to what you're getting in the stock market and determine which one is a better investment. At the same token, you can look at startups and say, what is my potential cash on cash return?
0: And explain cash on cash.
2: So annualized cash on cash return is basically you look at the amount of cash that you put in and what you're getting back annually. So let's say you have a building. A simple example is if you buy a $100,000 house and you're making um, $1,000 a month in rent, your annualized cash on cash is 12% right? $12,000 a year. Is that right? Yeah. $12,000 a year. Um, now if you own that house for 10 years and it doubles in value, now your cash on cash return with the sale annualized is what's a, what's the answer, Kyle? <laughs> it's another 10 grand a year or whatever, okay, right? So so, yeah. so now let's say it's 20% annualized cash on cash, right? Mm-hmm. So you know that if you stick to residential, Uh, single family homes, you can grow your money annually at 20%. So that gives you a benchmark. So if you have another investment opportunity to look at, you look at the annualized cash on cash return. So it could be an investment that maybe doesn't pay you back in five years until five years, but you double your money in five years. And that's also a 20% annualized cash on cash return. To take it a step further, you then look at the tax implications of what your investment's doing. So if you invest in something that will return 20% in one year and the investment's done, you're paying full income tax on that 20%. Versus if you're holding something for one, two, three, four years, your uh, tax benefits are much better. You're getting depreciation, you're getting uh, capital gains versus ordinary income. So to recap, it's two things. To evaluate any type of investment, it's annualized cash on cash return, and then add in the tax implications after that. Do you
0: do triple net on any of your properties? I have. um, What's
1: What's triple net?
0: So it's all the insurance and the things that the property owner would typically pay for when they own that property, taxes, things like that. They make the tenants pay that every month. So if you're a big REIT That's a huge part of your business is triple net.
2: Yeah. So Kyle, you could buy a Walgreens on the East coast. If it's triple net, that's pure mailbox money. You never hear from the landlord. You don't do anything. If the roof caves in, it's on them to fix it. If the parking lot needs to be resurfaced, it's on them. If the taxes go up, it's on them. You literally buy it. There's a lease in place and you just get your monthly check. And there's no reason to ever answer a phone call or pick up the phone. Right. So, um, I have done some of that only because I've bought it from an inexperienced realtor who listed a triple net strip mall. It's actually in Price Hill, the, um, wing eye care building.
0: Oh yeah. My grandma used to go to that, uh, to the, to, for her eye care. So it was
2: a million dollar building. It's in a decent part of Price Hill. It's in West Price Hill. A million dollar building that they listed for $640,000. It was just mispriced by a realtor who didn't know what they were doing. The problem with triple nets is because it's so easy and so passive, the returns are so low. So typically if you buy a Walgreens, a Starbucks, a Chipotle.
1: Post office. uh, No, you can buy post post office buildings. mm -hmm. They're all privately owned. I didn't know that. I don't
2: know what the numbers are on those though. All the national chains, you're going to get roughly 5% returns on it. If it's a McDonald's, you're, you're getting 4.5% return. So the cap rate is 45 which means if you buy it for $100,000, you're making $4,500 a year and that's it. So the upside on triple nets is so low. Where you can make a lot of money is if you buy a strip mall, get some national tenants in there, then you can sell it as a triple net and cash out very well. Because
0: investors are looking for triple net leases.
2: Yes, because um, an investor from the East Coast knows that there's a Starbucks, um, a Chipotle, some national— Panera
0: I- or something yeah. in there, yeah.
2: Um, they know none of those guys are going out of business, so they have no problem buying those sight unseen. They're essentially buying the paper. Mm-hmm. Right? And then
0: they are enjoying that 4% every year. Correct. Because of the triple nets, but they own 10,000 of those. Correct. So, so for you as an individual investor, 4% is an attractive. You're looking for, some, you're looking for the rents. You're looking for rent. I'm looking for income. a lot of upside. Yeah. Right. Okay. Plus growth in the, in the building itself. Right. So you, you, you mentioned Price Hill. Um, Price Hill, I know, you know, just from growing up there, it's been in decline for years and years and years. It's just a slow bleed, but deals to be had. What do you see in places like that, do you go into a neighborhood once it is, and we we're talking about, you know, being in the misery business. Do you think there's any value going into a neighborhood like Price Hill where it's been so beaten down and almost can't get beaten down anymore? And there's just like, maybe you can go in there and be part of that push to get it
2: better. Um, so I've tried that in Ripley, Ohio. It failed because the, the city leadership wasn't on board. There were just a bunch of you know, backwards people that for whatever reason, they don't want to progress. It's, it's starting to change now, but I think a lot of that comes down to the city leadership. I have tried to buy buildings. Um, one in Batavia, for example, I was going to put a bar restaurant into an old firehouse. Well, the city said, no, we want a brewery. And I'm like, listen, I'm not putting a half million dollars into trying to start a brewery. We'll start with the bar restaurant and if it's vastly successful, we'll look at doing a brewery. No, we want a brewery. How about this? Because it was a city owned building. If you don't have a brewery in three years, we'll take the building back from you. And I'm like, okay, how, how do you think this is that backwards mentality? And none
0: of these people are entrepreneurs, right?
2: How do you feel like you're going to take this building back that I just built up? Right. So places like that. Um, They just
0: think you're rolling in dough. Back to my point where we were talking about how these tenants think you just got all this money because you own a building. You're a landlord here. You come in. They're like, oh, this guy, he's got all this money. Oh, we're just going to tell him what to do.
2: Yeah, it comes down to city leadership. If you look at areas that are booming, it's because their city council, their mayors are so business friendly and so open to getting people in there. So I think a lot of that is driven from the top down.
0: What are some of the places around here where you would say the leadership is, is good?
2: So right now we're working with Milford and Norwood and they're so pro business. Norwood uh, just came from a meeting there. We're um, taking a building that's probably 120 years old, uh, last renovated in the seventies. And we've got questions from the, for the building inspector, uh, you know, questions on electric plumbing, we literally walk over to the township building and there's somebody there to answer our questions. And on top of that, they're like, Oh, let's, let's just take a walk over there and you know, I'll answer your questions. I mean, that's awesome. Right. Other municipalities, they're trying to not work. So they're like, you know, talk to the building department. No, you got to talk to the fire marshal. No, you got to talk to the health department run around. Right. They're not all on board with growing their area. So again, I think it just comes down to city leadership and wanting an area to develop.
0: If there's anybody listening, um, what are you looking for? Like, I, I know you mentioned being able to help people, and you know you don't want to get inundated with a bunch of you know people saying, "Oh, gosh, I want to get into this. How do I do this?" What's something that maybe we could help you with? Of the, the community.
2: So I have no problem giving back, right? But now that you've heard this and you know what my homework assignment is, if you want a little bit of mentorship come at me with the five commercial properties and what you like and don't like about them. Don't call me and say, Hey man, looking for a mentor. Like if you've heard this, you bet. and don't tell me you heard the podcast and that's why you're calling me. And you don't have your five properties ready to talk about. But for me, I would love to find more commercial deals. It's hard to explain what I'm looking for in terms of returns, but basically undervalued commercial properties, anything that has some vacancy or upside
0: And some of these people, some of these folks who come to you for mentorship and they've got these five properties, you could potentially be an investor for them.
2: Absolutely. And if if I'm not, and if they're truly worth pursuing, I'll teach them how to make money off of it, right? Find a buyer for it and put the deal together. If you have the deal, the money will come. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. My buddy just told me the other day, he was like, go rent an old Airstream and just stick it on a a, a vacant piece of land that you own. Because I have a couple pieces of land floating around the city. So he's just an Airstream, park it on there, and Airbnb. it. he's like, if you do it, they will come. And that's hot right now. People yeah.
1: want
2: unique Airbnb rentals.
1: Yeah. People are doing yeah. that in Los Angeles. They're doing their backyards. So anyway, guys, uh, well, I appreciate your time, Osh.
2: Yeah, this was fun. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming, buddy.
1: Amen. Motion to adjourn? Second. See you.